Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Diana Shapiro. Diana is the CEO of Dynam AI, a next-generation AI software developer. They help companies move faster, make better decisions, provide a better product, and improve the customer experience. Diana, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, of course, I'd love to hear about all the great things you guys are doing at Dynam AI, but I always like to go back in time just to learn more about people and the backgrounds and where they came from is... Obviously, you've had a very long, successful sales career. How did you actually get involved into sales? Well, it started a long time ago. So I um, I started working when I was 16 years old. I always had this dream of having my pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So I worked in the health club industry of teaching aerobics, which quickly got me interested in the sales side because I saw those guys making all the money. And so early on in my career, I started off selling health club memberships fresh out of college. And it's the best sales training you could ever have is to convince someone in such a competitive industry that they need to buy a health club membership in January and stick with it through December. So that was my, my foray into sales initially. But then that really started you know, the wheels turning as far as getting a real job, which didn't happen until one of the guys that I signed up for health club membership said, what are you doing? You have, you know, your business degree, you know, from a, a pretty good school. Why don't you come, um, you know, work for us at, at Merrill and uh, sell stocks and bonds? How about that? How about a real job? And so, you know, it really just perpetuated my sales training. It's one of the best sales training programs, I think, in the world. Um, six months in New York, came out of that, stocks and bonds, hated it. <laughs> I absolutely hated selling stocks and bonds, but I was infatuated with my Bloomberg terminals and all the charts and the analytics and really wanted to stay with that. And so from there, I, I went to work for the founders of marketwatch.com and BondEdge which are fixed income and stock trading platforms. And I got in early, was lucky enough to get options and they went public. Uh, it was, this is in the late nineties. And so it just, you know, the perpetuation in sales, it's you eat what you kill. And so I was good at it, which made me want to stick with it. And so it's really been a long career from data and analytics in the financial technology world translating into my next industry, which is sustainability and environmental waste solutions. My husband and I started a franchise there selling waste reduction solutions to Fortune 500 companies and you know, helping them save millions of dollars and making 50% of the profits that we saved for these companies. And I got sucked up into corporate on that one. So after a year, they made me national sales director 
and then COO of that company, which I was with for 14 years growing that company. And so it's just been sales, sales, sales. Um, I can't say that there was a passion for sales in there, but apparently I'm really good at it. And so when I'm good at something, I like to stick with it and I love puzzle solving. And so it was really the the solving of puzzles, really helping, you know, with waste diversion, helping people with fixed income portfolio analytics, helping people in the next one, which is another new industry, uh, medical devices, so brain waves, and looking at EEG technology and how that can be utilized for the mental health care industry was the one after that. Again, you know, really good at sales, but came in at the COO level there, helped grow that company. Um, they're going through clinical trials right now and really helping treat veterans, kids, um, anyone with uh, mental health uh, disorder where brainwave disturbances can be realigned um, to help them feel better with transcranial magnetic stimulation. COVID hit and that kind of put a damper on sales in general. And I stepped down from that company. I'm still an owner in the company, but uh, decided it was a good time during COVID to go back to school and start over. Not really, but to get a certificate in machine learning and artificial intelligence and to really be able to talk to CEOs and explain to them what AI and machine learning really is. I think there's a uh, a lack of education, but also it's kind of peer pressure where someone says to the other, uh, are you doing AI? Oh, yeah, we're doing AI. Do you know what AI is? Oh, yeah, I know what AI is. None of them know what it is. <laughs> no one knows how to actually implement it. And no one wants to tell you that that's the case. And so we're really out there here at Dynam, which is where I ended up solving those bigger problems, which, you know, number one is helping CEOs and um, companies identify what areas in their business could be improved with AI and then really utilizing advanced tools in order to accomplish that for companies. So that's a long answer to your, your sales question. I think I took you through my entire history. Yeah, there's so many things I want to ask you. I mean, I'd love to to dig into the AI topics, but just to go back a little bit, because I think it's always interesting how people got into sales. I can tell you my experience that told me I shouldn't be a salesperson, but in hindsight, it's definitely I wish I had learned a different lesson. But I was trying to, we were trying to raise money for our school and they tasked us with selling stuffed animals. So I go across to my neighbor Gary's house, who is this German guy who had taught to skateboard when he was 80. So he's a pretty remarkable guy knocked on his door and said, Hey, Gary, do you want to buy a stuffed animal? Of course, he says, no, my pitch was horrible. It didn't connect it to education or anything. He closes the door. And I think I can't sell. So I'm always just fascinated about how people got into sales and just in what you learned from selling health club memberships, or maybe even before, do you have a, a lemonade stand or we were a hustler at school selling candy bars? Like I know some of my friends who are, are now VP of sales. Yeah. So, you know, I hate, telling the truth about why I think I'm good at sales, but I do think it's because my dad was a psychiatrist and I listen more than I talk. And I think there's a falsification in understanding how good salespeople sell. And I think what it really comes down to is identifying a need and then filling that need. It's pretty basic, right? But if you don't take the time to understand what the person on the other side of the table is looking to accomplish, then you just miss the boat. And you're just, you know, you're, you're talking about what you want to sell rather than what they want to buy. And I think that's definitely what I learned in the health club industry, because you've got people of all walks coming in, you know, it's, it's like the DMV, you've got people that are coming in in January that 
you know, they just made a New Year's resolution, right? You know, they're not going to stick with it. And then you've got folks that are, you know, diehard fitness fans and they're joining the club because you've got the newest line of equipment. Until you identify who you're talking to and what's important to them, it's really difficult to sell. And I think that can be applied no matter what industry you're in. Learn about what they want first. Yeah, I think it's such a good lesson. And you mentioned listening or active listening, but also something I think a lot about from a leadership communication perspective, but tailoring your style to the other person for you is tailoring your delivery, the offer based on what they're looking for, whether they're a fitness expert and they want the latest and greatest, or there's someone who just has a New Year's resolution, as you mentioned. So great leadership lessons and also sales lessons as well. Yep, for sure. The other thing that just really strikes me is just this evolution or a revolution in some ways of your sales jobs from selling gym memberships to being a financial advisor for Merrill Lynch, now Merrill, to getting into clean tech, fintech, artificial intelligence. How have you gone about, I'll call it reinventing yourself over time? You talked about the certificate in machine learning, but what do you do in terms of to make those transitions? I think so many times leaders do that, whether they're moving from one company to another or they're shifting industries. What was that process like? How do you go about doing that? Well, you know, I could tell you I've only done my resume twice in my career. So a lot of it has been through networking, um, just being in the right place at the right time, luck for sure. But, you know, when I was getting out of the healthcare industry and considering getting into, you know, high finance, the bull at Merrill Lynch stood out to me and just, I've always not, I don't want to call myself an elitist, but working for companies that are going to make a difference, that have something meaningful, that have something different. It's not about punching a time clock for me. It's about really joining a company that's looking to grow and make an impact. And I want to leave with an impact. And so that bull at Merrill Lynch, it at the time stood out to me as just, you know, they were reinventing. They were just, they were the best in my opinion. And if you talk to my husband, he'd say it was Goldman Sachs and I made the wrong choice, but that's because that's where he went. But for me, it's it's really about identifying there there's something different about the company and something that they're really looking to achieve that's different than what everyone else is doing. Um, and I think you could say that for every company that I had joined. There was really a mission behind it that I felt like I was part of this mission. I can't sell something that I'm not, that I don't strongly believe in, or I couldn't see myself utilizing it. And so each one has a little personal story each company that I joined. Yeah, it's interesting. I think some people could sell anything, but I'm definitely like that more. And I think most people are in terms of they need to have passion, purpose, or something that really has a, a benefit beyond just making money for an organization. Yeah, it's it's really true. I, I could sell vanilla ice cream all day long, but don't ask me to sell chocolate ice cream. I would not be able to do it. Diane, I think another really interesting question I have for you is, is just given your strong track record as a salesperson, as a chief revenue officer, as head of sales for companies, what's that transition like been into becoming the CEO of Dynamai? So I, I mentioned I, I, my friends call me the puzzler. I like solving problems. Um, I like building companies. I like figuring out you know a, a more efficient way to do things. I've been like that my whole life. You know, personal life as well as professional life is just. You know, can I carry every single grocery bag from the back of this car into the house and close the trunk at the same time? I've always had that mentality. 
So when I interviewed for Dynam AI as CRO, they wanted someone to come in and really help with the sales pipeline and transitioning from being a service-based company to being more of a, a platform plus service-based company, a tech-enabled company. So really transitioning the company and really identifying the target market, drilling down into who is the target market, and then really sort of restructuring how we went about targeting that market. And so it was a lot of work and I dug my heels in on that. And we really just redid all the collateral, the entire focus, and just saw some tremendous results pretty quickly as a result of that. And I didn't ask for the job as CEO. Um, It was given to me um, about four months after I started. And I think just continuing the passion that the founding members wanted as far as direction, I think earning trust through making sales and forming partnerships. And it just, um, it happened. I, I, I don't know how else to explain it. It wasn't something that I asked for. And it is the first time that I've been the CEO of a company. And I feel like really grateful that they could put the trust in me um, to take the company forward from this point forward. I will say that I think sales is the lifeblood of any company. And so a true leader and a true CEO, I think, has to have that in their veins flowing pretty strong to keep revenue going for fundraising and just to keep the direction going, not just operationally, but making sure that client revenue is coming in. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, sales is is front and center. Obviously, different. Some companies are sales-driven, marketing-driven, product-driven, et cetera. But what kind of skills and behaviors did you have to develop in, or maybe just um, to connect, put an extra emphasis on as you shifted from being the CRO to being the CEO? Thick skin. You know, it really, for me, it was more about toning down and focusing inside rather than outside. So, you know, it is more administrative and having to do presentations to a board rather than doing presentations to as many clients on the outside was a, a pretty significant shift building a vision and then having to sell it internally i think in general is is the bit was the biggest shift for me on the positive very positive side having the trust from investors and from the employees and board members is supercharging it is not as much a powerful feeling as just this tremendous sense of responsibility that I wake up with every morning and wanting to do right by all of these different buckets of people. Is, uh, it's motivating. It, it, it keeps you waking up in the morning and it keeps you up till very late at night. That's the biggest change, I think, is the internal side of it. Yeah, I don't know if many people who've made that jump from CRO to CEO, but what advice would you have for people who are are in that role, whether they're running sales, marketing, or being the chief revenue officer, and their aspirations to jump to that to that top seat, to that CEO post? Yeah, I mean, I would say anyone that wants to move from being a CRO to CEO, don't leave behind all of your expertise in sales and business development. If you put that at the base of what drives you as a CEO you're pretty well assured success. If you're driving revenue, no one's going to complain about your performance or your efforts. And I think, you know, surround yourself by people that can prop you up in the areas that are maybe not your strength. You know, maybe that's operations or HR technology, hire a great CTO, hire a great CFO, and just make sure that the skill sets that are not your strengths 
are offset by people who, who have them. And I think that goes for really anyone moving into a CEO position from whatever role they were in before. Don't try to do it all yourself. That's good advice. I'd be curious just to get your perspective in terms of what CROs can learn from CEOs and vice versa. Oh, that's a great question. I think, you know, for me, the outgoing CEO, Dynam, is managing partner at Analytics Ventures. And we talked about a little bit before, but Analytics Ventures incubated Dynam. So, you know, from 2016 to 2019, we were really just part of this family of companies. And there was a large investment into Analytic Ventures, which was then diversified into these four or five different companies that were launched from Analytics Ventures. One is CureMetrics, one's CureMatch, both in the oncology space, and then AlphaTray, which is algorithmic trading platform, and then Dynam, which is really um, software development in the AI space. And the way that they launched these companies was one of the managing partners would serve as interim CEO while it was being incubated. And then once it was ready to fly, bring in you know the CEO to actually take it and you know run the company independently. So I was very lucky that when I joined as CRO, um, that Andreas Roel was um, CEO and interim CEO, and I was able to learn from him and basically share the experience that he had since 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 during all the incubation phases. So knowledge share, almost like when an incoming president gets to share all the experiences from the outgoing president. Normally, when you're taking over at a company, you don't get to meet your, you know, the person you're replacing. But in this case, I, I was lucky enough to work alongside him and then also now have him on my board. So both Andreas and Navid Alipur, who are managing partners at Analytics Ventures, are on the board of Dynam. And so having that shared success from the incubation phase to now was just priceless. I don't think that too many CEOs get that privilege, but I, I was lucky to have that. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely unique in terms of that transition. But but what would you say some good advice that a CEO would have for a CRO or, or perhaps what do you learn from that particular situation? Although obviously you recognize yours is a little bit unique. Yeah, mine's a little unique. So one thing that a CRO doesn't necessarily have experience in, but needs to learn pretty quickly is fundraising and dealing with investors and raising money. And it's it's a really similar vein to closing clients. You know, it's a sales process in and about itself. But raising money and, and working with investors is a different level of responsibility fiscally because you're not only raising the money, but you're also needing to show how you're spending that money. And so I think you know, learning about that side of the business for a CRO is really, really important. Budgeting, forecasting, not just for the sales team, but for the company. That was a huge learning process for me. And, you know, certainly a level of education where you're learning a little bit about each division in the company. So not just sales, but now you're learning about the technology division and a hiring plan. How are you going to spend this money? Why are you going to use the money in the way that you say you're going to spend it as far as hiring data scientists and machine learning engineers and project managers? 
Um, and how do you scale a company based on incoming revenue? So the, the operational side of it is definitely an important area to learn. And it's really just part of the growth phase. So going from being a smaller company into a larger company, you have to have that skill set in order to scale a company. Great. And then the other part of that question is just be curious, your advice, like what advice should CROs give to CEOs who maybe didn't ascend from a CRO position before? Oh gosh. Well, I've worked for some of them. You know, I think it's really, you know, looking at the sales plan separately from the business plan. And, you know, any CEO that is a CEO knows that you have a forecast and a budget that you have to adhere to. And so really not using your forecast as a way to pump up the numbers without a thought process on how you're going to deliver it, but really tying together a go-to-market strategy that includes marketing, sales, and execution or delivery and tying those all together and really you know, looking at your employees individually with their career in mind and knowing that this is a team effort and having to you know, really put all of those pieces together as you're moving forward and not just focusing on you know, the end game, which is what I think a lot of CEOs are doing, but also the path in which to get there. And, you know, all of that is you have to be a people person. You have to understand your employees and their motivations um, so that they can help with the execution. That part of it for me, I think, was pretty critical and something I brought to the table and something I would definitely want to share with CEOs how important that actually is if they want to achieve their goals. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and focus on the work you guys are doing at Dynamea. Can you talk a little bit at a very high level in terms of the types of work and how you're working with companies? Sure. We just uh, formed a a publicly available partnership, um, or I should say we did some great press releases with Ondas Holdings. Um, They're a publicly traded company, um, and they recently acquired American Robotics, which is the first FAA-cleared autonomous drone company. Um, We're working with them in the oil and gas sector. And it's been incredible. You know, some, I can't talk about, you know, in detail, uh, I stay very high level, like you said, but utilizing drones to collect images out in the field, whether that be oil and gas, or, you know, industrial type location, you could think about it for a military application as well. And then being able to detect anomalies, so things that shouldn't be there from those images. So utilizing AI to really identify anomalies is is a big deal. And for us, we bring physics into the equation. So there are um, a lot of AI companies out there, companies that are automating the data filtering process, the data preparation process. But what we're doing is not just automating, we're bringing the outside world into model training to teach the models how to think more cognitively, taking things into consideration such as balance or heat, um, motion, time, propensity to buy, human behaviors, which right now aren't being incorporated into model training. And so models are delivering analytics that are not as accurate as they could be, you know, certainly not as accurate as what the human mind would be able to do. You think about, you know, teaching a child how to ride a bicycle, you know, the data points are the bike, the kid, the helmet, and the street, right, that they're riding on. And you could tell a kid all these data points and say, go ride a bike. But unless you're going to teach them about the physics 
which is, you know, the balance and gravity, it's going to take a really long time for that kid to learn how to ride that bike. And so what we do at Dynam is we're able to bring in those outside elements into the model training process and really help train the models to utilize some of these more conscious characteristics as we're training the models. So we don't need as much data to train the models. That's our secret sauce. You say model training, I'm thinking of a circus, you know, for a non uh, person immersed in AI every day. But talk to me about what that means. Like, what is a model? And how do you actually train a model? Because I think a lot of people, it's, it's a black box, you know, they talk to their to Siri or Google Assistant or Alexa. What is that model? And how do you go about training it? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're so right. Um, So really, it's an algorithm. Think of it as a bunch of decisions. You know, everyone knows WebMD. It's a good example. You have to start from the beginning. So you identify, you know, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? And then think of it this way. You know, if there's a data point that leads you to say yes, then you go down a certain branch of the tree in one direction. And then the next question is there posed again. And if you answer yes or no, it goes down a certain direction. And so it's really just a bunch of questions. It's really a bunch of what if scenarios and and an algorithm just drives that quickly so that the data is being um, ingested and then it goes through this decision tree is what an algorithm is. And then it what comes out at the end is after it's gone through the decision tree and it's answered all of the questions inside, instead of it taking years and hours, it takes seconds. And that's what artificial intelligence does. And so in order to train the algorithm to recognize the data and make a certain trip or decision within the algorithm tree, you have to give it information. Does that help? No, absolutely. Absolutely. I just was just wanted to clarify for people because I think it's, it feels like this black box and that we're starting to accept, but I appreciate the clarification. Yeah, AI adoption is still so slow. And I think we started off talking about that. One of the best things that we can do right now as a uh, community or you know, anyone in the AI sector is just to call it out in the very beginning. You know, if you know what AI is, great. I can skip the first 10 slides. But if you don't, I'm going to go through my presentation and it would be my pleasure to bring you up the curve because most people don't know what it is. And like really putting people at ease to that fact, I think, is where we need to be as a society right now. I know a lot of people use artificial intelligence, machine learning, I think it's neural networks and different terminology synonymously, and they're not synonymous. So how do you actually go about educating CEOs? I know you're in front of CEOs a lot as part of your work with NMAI, but how does that work from an education perspective? I think if we stick with problem solving rather than talking about the technology or the solution, it's a lot easier for them to understand. So we spend a a significant amount of time doing business use case identification. In other words, most CEOs, they're looking to innovate so they can stay competitive, right? And so if they're able to solve an industry-related problem, you know, take blood sugar analysis as a silly example that just came into my head. If we could read blood sugar levels quicker in real time, perhaps, then we can deliver the diagnostic and the, um, the action faster. We could have more meaningful actions that could occur. And that can apply to anything. You know, it could apply to shopping. You walk into a store, you know, do you want your surroundings 
to match what it is you're looking to buy because you're a woman and you're, you know, 40 years old and it's 12 noon and you're probably there for lunch. And all of a sudden the displays are geared toward what they assume you want to buy because that's happening right now. Or, you know, is it that you would like, you have a software product and you really want to do ad optimization geared toward your MVP, your most valuable purchaser, most valuable player. And so you really want to learn more about who are your target personas, you know, who are the people that spend the most money on your products and how do we get in front of those people more and using AI for that. Um, There are just so many applications where it could really serve to grow a company, to increase the stickiness of your product or your software. But really, it's about problem solving for companies. I think in order to stay competitive, they have to keep reinventing themselves and they have to really look at an industry as far as, you know, growth in the industry, as opposed to just looking at growth as a company, you know, what can they fix? Yes, you talk about artificial adoption, artificial intelligence adoption being low. What do you mean by that? And what are some of the barriers to greater AI adoption? Yeah. So it's uh, all about explainable AI. You know, they force our kids in school right now to show their work, but we don't have that with artificial intelligence and machine learning. There are often times where, you know, you get this result from, you know, using artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithm, and you don't know how those results were attained. And sometimes or most of the time, if you don't know how a result was attained, then it's really difficult to trust that result and to act on it, right? Which is why, you know, AI isn't necessarily being used for um, decision-making. They're very reluctant in the military to utilize it for um, activities. There's still a human in the loop in the medical world. You know, you don't have a lot of devices that are driven by AI to operate is robotic surgery now, but it's still, it's just difficult to get to the point where AI is accepted as a tool because of the accuracy. And so at Dynam, that's one of the problems that we're looking to solve, that we're addressing, which is again, bringing the data points that are not in the original data set into the machine learning process to teach the algorithms to actually behave more cognitively. And provide um, decision-making tools that are based more on what's happening in the real world. So whether that's, you know, weather or heat or, you know, propensity, you know, human behaviors that can be modeled and utilized for decision-making. How do you do that? Practically speaking, you talk about greater AI adoption and, and the word I'm thinking about is trust is, is how do you get people and industries to trust the models without showing them work, without the human involved? Like, how do you actually go about practically doing that? So, you know, it's obviously creating proof of concept. So part of what what we do is we have a process for first use case identification and identifying KPIs. So KPIs, you know, key performance indicators. What is it going to be where you're going to give it a thumbs up, right? Let's identify those up front like you would do for anything. And so what you want is to eliminate as much as possible the noise and the false positives. And so after you've built your your prototype, it's really about testing and it's looking at ingesting the data and what's coming out and looking at your KPIs. Did I achieve the results that I set out to achieve? 
And that's where you're, you know, you're able to actually gain that trust and gain that adoption is having the lower um, rate of false positives um, or false negatives uh, in your results. So all KPI driven. Yeah, it almost reminds me of non-digital marketing efforts. You know, we think it's it's actually being doing something that's beneficial. We think it's creating lift. We think it's actually creating customer loyalty, but we're not really sure. But this is actually great. You're actually tying the work, tying the models to actually real KPIs and real outcomes. It's true. And then if you don't get the results that you want, going back to the model and tweaking, fine-tuning, changing it until you do achieve those KPIs. And that is what AI is, is it's learning, right? And adjusting. And that's true AI is when it's learning. I'm curious your perspective, because if I if I rewind the tape even a few years, it seemed like there was so much fear, you know, thinking about Skynet from a Terminator and, you know, AI taking over the world and being a risk to humanity without even debating the merits of that. But it seems like we've moved really quickly into acceptance and that AI is all around us, whether it's on our phones or integrated into software and some of our marketing and sales tools. What's caused that shift? And and also, I'm just curious, like, what are some of the current applications of AI that we're just totally overlooking because we've accepted it as part of our lives now? That's a great question. You know, as far as what we've overlooked, I think that we've become a digital society. And I, I think that, you know, for sure, COVID has accelerated that substantially. You know, I never would have thought my mom would be using DoorDash, for instance, ever. Uh, it was like crazy to get her to even, and she's going to be watching this and get mad at me now. But it, it was great to just get her to use a cell phone and to start texting and even sending, you know, uh, pictures back and forth. I think that we've been forced into this digital world where, you know, everyone is after ROI. You know, how can we do it faster? and more accurately. And I think, you know, understanding the capabilities and the limitations of the human mind and the human eye, eyesight, and knowing that, you know, we now have computers that can see more than what we can see with, you know, thermal imaging, for instance, where you could look at a mammogram or an image and it's not, you know, you could see a, a tumor that's not detected by the human eye, but the computer can see it. I mean, that's motivation alone, right? And to move toward AI and machine learning is just knowing that, you know, we've always depended on our brains and, you know, our, our sight and our ability to make decisions that sometimes are based on emotions. And that's not always the best scenario to make the best decisions. And so computers can in some good ways, I think, take emotion out. And it could also be in some bad ways, you know, to have emotion out, right? And so, you know, conscious AI, um, responsible AI, these are all new terms that are coming to market now is what kind of society do we actually want to create? Because it's still going to be a human that programs that algorithm and sets it forward. And what kinds of regulations are we going to have in place for machine learning and algorithms, because I think we're still in control. We don't want to be out of control, right? We always want to be in control. I think human in the loop is always going to be part of the process. And I would say to those out there that are fearful, you know, that computers are going to take over the world, that's never going to happen. It's always going to take a human to set the wheels in motion. But I think we definitely need good use cases, business use cases, in order to put the right types of AI in place 
that are going to do meaningful and, and good things. Yeah. With that in mind, what are some of the questions you think we should be asking and answering and what, in what areas should we maybe tap the brakes a little bit in terms of just full-fledged adoption with AI? That's great questions. I think, you know, when you're looking to utilize AI and machine learning and the FDA does a great job of this, so we don't have to worry, but clinical decision-making and, you know, I'm talking about medical in the medical field, there are clinical decision-making tools, which can really be great for physicians or clinicians in taking data and then really analyzing it and putting forth sort more of a decision-making tree based on propensity, which is 80% of people that had blood that looked like your blood ended with a diagnosis of cancer. So propensity to have cancer if all of these items are in play. Or, you know, autoimmune disease is another one. Being able to really help physicians and support physicians to make the ultimate decision, getting them closer to making an educated decision, being able to look at the health record backwards in time and utilizing the health record as part of the decision-making process with the current diagnosis. These are all things that, you know, are just start that we're on the edge of starting to do these kinds of things or like what CureMatch is doing with taking the genomic profile uh, NGA panel into consideration when looking at the cancer diagnosis and the type of tumor that a patient has and then figuring out the best therapies or therapy combinations for that cancer. You know, really, there are so many different applications that I think can be made better over time. But those, I think, in the medical field are really at the forefront right now. Yeah, I think most people tend to think of things that don't have a real world benefit. I mean, it's a real world, I guess, to be able to talk to your phone and ask for information, although I'm not sure how smart Siri really is. But you need some really good real world examples from mammogram detection and cancer detection and detecting some of those propensity for diseases, serious diseases at that. So that's really exciting advancements for sure. One of the things you mentioned, I don't know if it was today or in a previous conversation, we talked about AI being broken. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not as much broken, but inside, and it's just a joke on the inside, we call it high school AI or basement AI, where, you know, kind of like when AOL came to market, we were all super excited, right? Because we were on the internet or the information superhighway. But it was like you had that uh, uh, the whole dial up and it was slow and you lost your connection, but no one cared, right? Because we had it, like we had internet and it was freaking cool. So, you know, AI and ML, they're great buzzwords, but it's data and analytics. It's been, a, been around for a long time. We're just giving it a cool name of artificial intelligence. And really, we're just building models that are smarter and more complex. So, you know, I just think that the more that we can train the models, the, the algorithms to be more cognitive and take into account common sense, things like balance, and I'm going to just keep repeating all the physics models, right? Behavior, really, so that when they're ingesting data, that they're not just spitting out results based on historical data points, that they're spitting out results that are actually based on what's happening in the real world at that point in time. So things like, you know, it might be um, persona information about a customer where, okay, that customer just spent $100 on your product 
but what is it that you want more from that customer? Well, you want them to stay on your site and buy more. Or as a gamer, you want them to be gaming more. So what is it about the product that they bought or the brand that they bought or the game that they're playing? And how does it link back to the demographic of this person? Or what happened during that gameplay? Were there rewards that were given to this person that made them stay and spend more money? And so learning more about your customer is what has been broken historically. It's something that Dynam is really focused on, is really helping companies learn more about the end user or the end buyer so that they can attract more of them and give them more of what they want. So not necessarily broken, but opportunities to improve AI moving forward. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, when I say broken, it's, you know, to me, there's no adoption, then it's broken. It's not that they have a, a, a piece of broken AI software. It's that they just chose not to do it, use AI in the company at all, period. And so AI as a sector, I think, could use a lot of improvement. There is a lot that needs to be delivered to the outside world that isn't being delivered right now. It's just minimalistic in its evolution. So we're at the very, very, very beginning stages of what the potential is for AI. All right, last question for you. So what would your advice be to leaders who are thinking about and looking for ways to adopt AI in a more significant way? www.dynum.ai. It's all about education. So I would say, don't be afraid to ask questions. No question is a stupid question. Start at the beginning. Don't go and buy something that's an out-of-the-box solution for your problem. Everyone's problems are different and require something different as far as the coding and the programming. And the algorithm really needs to outline exactly what your business model is and what you're looking to achieve. So I think talking and and getting a consultant involved in your decision-making as far as what company you're going to go with or whether you're going to hire an internal team um, and you have enough business use cases to where that ROI makes sense. I think that's a great place to start is really just get educated on what, what it is you're trying to solve. Make sure that it's not just, I want AI, but that it's, I want AI because AI can help me solve this problem. And these are the KPIs that I would have in place to say that this has been a success if I could achieve XYZ. So you answered my final, final question, which is where can people go to find out more about uh, what you're up to? So I assume it's, is it dynam.ai? Yeah, it's dynam.ai. That's right. We also have a a platform for DIY folks, which is vizlab, V-I-Z-L-A-B.ai, which we're launching in April. Fantastic. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes. Well, Diana, thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you sharing your insights today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.